Good afternoon, my friends. The doctor is in the house. Welcome back to another episode of To Your Health with Dr. G on this happy Wednesday. So again, welcome back. I'm so excited today to welcome uh, my guest, which I'll get to in a little bit, but I'm excited to talk to you guys more about this series that we've been having, my hashtag cancer sucks series, because it does. And each week we've been blessed to break down a lot of the barriers that have been out there about cancer. We've spent the, mo the, most, the majority of the time talking about screening uh, related to cancer, talking about colorectal cancer two weeks ago, and then having a great discussion on breast cancer last week. But this show is going to be just as equally important as the previous shows, because we're going to talk today about lung cancer. So again, my name is Dr. Mark Gomez. I'm a board-certified internal medicine physician practicing out in the Western suburbs of Chicago. You can check me out on my website, www.drmarkgomez.com. That's again, www.drmarkgomez.com. Also check me out on my handle, social media, at to your health, Dr. G. So again, today we're gonna to be talking about lung cancer. And again, the reason why we wanted to do this series on my hashtag cancer sucks is because we wanna get people the right information. There's a lot of misinformation out there and what better way to get that information from myself and my trusted colleagues, people that are in the trenches, practitioners that deal with these kind of challenges and deal with people in their lives on a daily basis. And again, this show is all about, all about building trust and delivering truth. There it is. So welcome back. So those of you that have been with us before, welcome back. Those that are new to the show, welcome. And what I do, of course, is I break down a topic for what the show's all about. And so today, again, we're going to break down lung cancer. So before I introduce my guests, I want to hit you guys with a few couple things. As usual, since this is a medical show, but it's also entertainment, I've got to hit you with a quick disclaimer. All right. The content of To Your Health with Dr. G is for informational and entertainment purposes only, and that the content is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice diagnosis, and or treatment. Further details can be found at www.toyourhealthwithdrg.com slash disclaimer. All right, guys. So again, we're continuing this Cancer Sucks series, cancer that, of course, impacts us all, our loved ones, our neighbors, even ourselves. Again, cancer, as we talked about before, is the second most common killer in this country, so it's important to create awareness. And I want to talk about cancer on a daily basis because we have to create that awareness. And we have to be comfortable talking about it, too, because that's still a reality. So again, when we talk about today, we're going to learn more about lung cancer. We're going to talk about some of the barriers that are out there. We're also going to talk about the hope, the survivorship, the, the, the ways that we can come together as a society, leveraging my physician experts to make a difference in people's lives. So a couple quick stats on lung cancer. I wrote them down for you because I don't have them memorized, but I wrote them down, but this is important. Lung cancer. It is the leading cause of cancer death and is the second most common cancer among both men and women in the U.S. Approximately 80 to 90 percent of lung cancers can be attributed to cigarette smoking or exposure to secondhand smoke. And the last stat I'll hit you with before we get into some of the details is the estimated number of deaths from lung cancer in the year 2013 in this country was almost 160,000 people. And that number of 160,000 people is more than three times the number of deaths from colorectal cancer, which was the second leading cause of cancer death in this country. So we're going to talk about some of those kind of uh, dynamics because the numbers are real. So what I want to do is I want to introduce my guests, and I had to give them much love. 
because even though we're talking about a serious topic, I have much love for my guests. And so this is really, this is really interesting because when I came to this show, I knew these two individuals had to come on, not only for their medical expertise, but just brilliant, but just because we've known each other for a long time. So what I first want to do is I want to introduce my, my guests immediately to my right because you're sitting there, so you first went on the hot seat. Uh, uh, but, but let me just tell you briefly about her. She is just an amazing individual. Uh, she was my former chief resident at Loyola back in the day. Uh, actually, my second guest was also my chief resident, too, so the ties have turned a little bit, so I get to ask the questions when they used to ask me questions when I was a resident uh, going through Loyola. But I have to give much love and much props uh, to my good friend and colleague, Dr. Cheryl Serlanis, uh, from Loyola University Medical Center. Uh, you can check her out at www.loyolamedicine.org. And then Cheryl, uh, Dr. Zerlanis is a medical uh, hematologist and oncologist, and she has a great passion for this topic of lung cancer. So, Doc, welcome to the show. Why don't you just tell us, why don't you just introduce yourself, and then also tell us where you did your training. You can shout Loyola from the mountaintops. I don't care. I love it because I'm shouting it too. But tell us a little bit more about your training, where you did medical school, fellowship, uh, your residency, of course. And then talk about how you just see cancer, lung cancer, on a day-to-day -day basis. Thanks so much for inviting me. I actually did all of my training at Loyola, so I will have to shout it from the mountaintops because I went to medical school residency and I did a hematology oncology fellowship at Loyola and now my practice as a medical oncologist my area of specialty and expertise is in treating patients with lung cancer so it really is something that I'm passionate about and something that I really live and breathe every day in my career so taking care of patients who present with lung cancer whether coming in with a new diagnosis or patients that I've been treating over a number of years. So you correctly said that lung cancer and treating lung cancer is definitely a passion of mine. Excellent. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Hey, you bet. I can't wait to get into some more discussion. My second guest, uh, I want to welcome him back to the show. Also, again, one of my former chief residents, but also we used to see him in the hallways at Loyola back in our days. So I do want to welcome back to the show Dr. Matthew Ball, who is a board-certified pulmonologist and critical care medicine expert with DuPage Medical Group. Check him out at www.dupagemedicalgroup.com. Dr. Ball, welcome to the show. Thanks, Mark. Hey, Dr. Ball, please tell us a little bit about yourself, about where you did your training, uh, residency, fellowship, and then how do you kind of see this topic on a day-to-day -day basis? Yeah, so it seems like we have a similar theme today. I did all of my training at Loyola as well. I did medical school, residency, and a pulmonary critical care fellowship at Loyola. And now I'm uh, practicing in the western suburbs with DuPage Medical Group. And pulmonologists like myself uh, often get involved in seeing patients with lung cancer more for the assisting with the initial diagnosis of lung cancer. So uh, evaluating patients who come in with abnormal imaging findings and get involved in, in assisting to make the diagnosis, sometimes through some advanced diagnostic procedures such as bronchoscopy. and. And then uh, after uh, making the diagnosis, we often will uh, enlist the support of our oncology friends to help uh, move forward with treatment of, of lung cancer. Excellent. So thanks, Doc, for coming on to the show. So what we're going to do, before we get into kind of like how we run this show, I do want to give a quick shout-out to our Goal Level sponsor, Main Street Candy and Toys. Check them out at www.mainstreetcandyandtoys.com. So how we like to do this, again, we're talking about lung cancer. Again, cancer sucks. We're talking about ways to make sure that we're doing our due diligence and helping people not only properly diagnose 
if they have it, certainly we'll talk about screening today, and then a little bit about treatment. And we want to make sure that people have the right information that are out there. And again, I want people to leverage people like me, leverage physicians like me, leverage physicians like 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 Dr. Sarlanis and, and, and Dr. Ball for their expertise and get the right information from the right resources. Too many times there's a lot of misinformation out there, and certainly when cancer, when you're looking at a variety of different treatments, we want to make sure that people have the right information. And taking advantage of, of practices like ours and the doctor's practices, it's going to be a great start to make sure you're getting the right information for you and your loved ones. So how we kind of do the show, we always talk about the chief complaint in healthcare, and certainly when people come to our office, the chief complaint certainly means why they're there to see us. And so the chief complaint, or AKA the question of the hour is, what are we doing to best minimize the burden of lung cancer in this country? And so, that's going to be our talk. We're going to center this around that thing because there's a lot of stuff to talk about. So, I want to ask the first question. I'm going to ask the first question to Dr. Solanis. And so, let's do this. Here's my question for you. We just kind of talked about how cigarette smoking is uh, certainly, the, uh, certainly linked to lung cancer, the biggest risk for lung cancer. But let me ask you this. This is more kind of a philosophical question. Um, how early in life should we prevent uh, how early in life should smoking prevention measures be implemented? Is there like an age that we should be doing this at? I think it's important to start smoking prevention measures very early in life. It, there's a lot of data out there that many persons who smoke later in life actually start smoking in the teen years, even at 15 or 16, and are exposed to cigarette smoking even earlier than that, even as early as sixth grade. So. I think there are a lot of good school-based programs and a lot of messages that can be given to kids even as young as in kindergarten. So certainly the message needs to be age-appropriate, but as part of a health-based strategy, so healthy living, healthy diet, exercising, starting to introduce the concept of avoidance of smoking is something that we really could think about doing even in children as young as kindergarten. I mean, and we were talking about, again, we were talking, when we think about healthcare, we think about prevention and doing everything that we can, you know, uh, making those those changes now and implementing them now before somebody does get a disease burden process much later in life. And that's across, not just talking about cancer, we're talking about a lot of different things that, that people um, become diagnosed with. Dr. Ball, how early is too early for you? Oh, I don't think there is a, any too early. I think exactly what she said is just trying to engage uh, young people to, to try to help prevent people from starting smoking. Uh, once they get started, it's so difficult for, for patients to quit. You know, I see adult patients who've smoked for 30, 40 years, and it's just so challenging for them to quit. They, they fight so hard to, to try to do it. And so if we can prevent it from, from ever happening or getting started, that's, that's so important. Excellent. Um, what about at the, like, the school level? You know, we think about how early can we intervene here. You know, where, what's the role at the elementary school level or the middle school level or the high school level? Uh, Dr. Zerlandis, would you comment on that as far as education at that point? I think the education can come from two places, from home and at the school level. But there are a lot of good school-based programs, and certainly the message doesn't need to be very extensive for younger children. But I think children see people smoking. They know what it is even at an early age. And I think there are, as part of a healthy strategy, so either in health class or just really as part of healthy living strategies, I think the school can play a big role. And there are, the CDC has some, some um, tools, and, and there are tools that are available, both web-based tools and 
print-based tools that can be used to give advice to children. I think it's important just to introduce the topic to young children so that as they grow older, it will be obvious to them, of course, we shouldn't smoke, that's not healthy. So I think if, if we wait until they're old enough to be exposed to cigarettes, to try it, you know, then once, like Dr. Moss said, once they try it, then it's really easy to sort of get addicted and to keep smoking until we see problems later in life. I totally remember when I was a, I was a child of, a, of the 80s and certainly remember uh, a lot of the cigarette smoking, the anti-smoking campaigns that were implemented at that time. And so we're talking about a big public health uh, um, call, getting a sense of urgency and hopefully having that kind of move the needle. The reality is that even though we have some of those initiatives, there are people that still want to fall into those behaviors. Um, what, what's your thought on that? What can we do more, Dr. Baugh, as far as getting that education out? Is there anything else we can do? And we're having public service campaigns. Um, celebrities getting behind things. What else can we do as a society to help out? Yeah, I think just just more of education, and I mean, you see a lot more of these TV ads, uh, you know, trying to to speak about the dangers of smoking and trying to not not uh, you know uh, not have it you know celebrities smoking and, and kids idolizing their celebrity uh, people they're fans of uh, who smoke and. Just educating them about the dangers of smoking, and, and I think we have we have a lot of work to do, but I think we're making some progress. All right, we like again hope, uh, and we can make that progress. So, and it's very interesting that, that even some of the, the the big companies that are through certainly the manufacturers of tobacco products, uh, they've initiated their um, they've really tried to step up their game, and a lot of a lot of from public pressure. And again, so we're trying to make that change for everybody. So let me ask you guys this: There's a trend that's going on, and we certainly see this in younger people. Um, and we see it's some, like some current smokers, but this idea of vaping, the e-cigarettes or electronic cigarettes, um, you know, basically what, what, it, what comes out when I, when I think about it, uh, the electronic cigarette, it's, it's, a, it's a liquid, there's a liquid in the e-cigarette, the e-cigarette, they call it e-liquid or e-juice, and certainly nicotine is part of that mixture most of the times, but not always, but you're certainly seeing these kind of trends of young people, the adolescents, uh, doing this and saying, like, hey, this is a safer alternative. Um, I'm going to ask a question back to Dr. Ba. Uh, what's your thought, what's your takes on vaping? How, how big is this issue? Uh, you know, I certainly see a lot of my patients that have come in and say, oh, well, I stopped doing my cigarettes, but I vape now. But you're looking at this in the younger population, certainly being exposed. So what's your thoughts on vaping? Yeah, I mean, we're starting to see, even though the rates of smoking might be coming down, we're starting to see the rates of vaping going up. And... I mean, if you think about it, I think the cigarette, the tobacco companies have sort of seen the writing on the wall and that, that uh, it's becoming more and more difficult to smoke. So they've come out with this brand new type of product that now you can, you can smoke and there's, you know, oh, it's just vapor and, and they'd love people to think that it's just harmless. But in reality, we, we just don't know enough about it yet. And, and you know, people are... A lot of times, and I think we might get into this later, they're starting to, to do a little bit of both, where they continue to smoke cigarettes, but they might also vape in areas where maybe they can't smoke cigarettes. So it's sort of, are we trading it for something else? Uh, that's that's my concern. We, we have a lot to learn about these things. They've only been out a little over 10 years, so we we won't know for years down the line what the real long-term effects are. Dr. Zerlanis, what are you seeing from your perspective? Uh, you know, obviously as a medical oncologist, uh, you know, obviously you see the, 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 the challenges, and you certainly you're integral in the diagnosis of lung cancer, but what are you seeing like uh, as far as what's, what the literature is saying now about vaping from your kind of a governing body of medicine? 
I think we're really not clear on what the risks are as far as development of lung cancer and long-term risks. There's definitely some data coming out that there's probably other health risks associated with vaping more along the lines of other lung diseases. I think we just don't know. Certainly, it's probably relatively safer from a standpoint of developing lung cancer. But again, there are patients who are doing both, so sort of doing one and then doing the other. And you know, one of the issues is that it's great if one can use vaping to quit smoking cigarettes and then to quit vaping, but it, there are also other chemicals and other additives, even such as formaldehyde and, and other compounds that we really don't know the effects of. So I think if it can be used as a, a short-term bridge to quitting, then that certainly would be a good thing. But the concern really would be, it, does it help people to quit? Or are people sort of shifting one addiction to a, another addiction? So are we really helping people to become empowered and to lose the mental and emotional addiction to smoking? Because that's often, like you said, we can't really smoke in restaurants and things like that. And so so do we, are our patients able to get out of the situations that they enjoy smoking in um, and, and quit altogether? So I think that's really the question is, will it be useful to some patients to try to help them quit entirely? We, we really don't have enough evidence to suggest that doing vaping long-term is probably a, a very safe alternative. I think time will tell, but we shouldn't be giving the message that it's a totally safe alternative and, until we know more about it. I agree, and, and what I try to tell my, my patients in my practice that are vaping, and I say, listen, you know, it's certainly the patients that, have, that maybe had been smoking cigarettes first, and you say, congratulations, hey, you're not smoking cigarettes. But, you know, again, let's be, we still don't know some of the long-term data as you guys are talking about. And so, you know, yes, the, the purist in me would say, you go all natural, just breathe air like everybody else. <laughs> and, uh, and our public health uh, efforts to keep our air clean and healthy and fresh, let's, let's just deal with that and, and, and um, try to solve these problems. All right, so thanks for giving us some information again, because that's important about vaping, because people are looking at different kind of ways uh, but the reality is you're still inhaling something into your lungs. And I think, uh, as Dr. Ball mentioned, you know, we're still trying to find out what are going to be the long-term stuff from that. And again, uh, you know, of course, I tell people, uh, uh, when it comes to vaping, I, I, I tell them, okay, yeah, there might be potential for addiction. There might be, certainly there's some short-term stuff. Maybe, you know, your, your, your breath stings or you get oral irritation in your mouth or, or whatnot. So there's a lot of different things that we're still trying to look at from a symptom standpoint. Uh, certainly, I found some data that shows that actually vaping can increase heart rate, chest pain, and increase your blood pressure. So uh, well, obviously we don't want to uh, put yourself into other problems that may be related from a cardiovascular standpoint. So excellent. All right, guys. So let me ask you this. I want to get into some of the screening things because screening is certainly so paramount when it comes to lung cancer. So um, <clears throat> I, I reconnected with, with, with Dr. Zerlandis at, um, at a Loyola conference back in April. And she gave an amazing talk about lung cancer because that's really her forte. But she's, she's got a forte in a lot of different things related to oncology. But uh, I thought, thought one of the striking points that I took home from her lecture was the screening modalities that are out there. And certainly as a primary care physician, I, I left that conference and I said, wow, I need to do a better job looking at the guidelines for screening for lung cancer. So, uh, so Doc, can you mind telling us a little bit about what are these guidelines, a low-dose CT scan. Can you explain a little bit to people that are listening to the show uh, what's out there, when is it indicated, and what are we trying to, what are we trying to accomplish, and are, and are we accomplishing what we're trying to accomplish? Great. So lung cancer screening is something with which I'm intimately involved and something that I think is very important. 
low-dose CT scans, so CT scans that are done with lower than conventional use of radiation, has been shown to be a tool that can help diagnose lung cancers earlier than usual. So we know that outside of a screening program that most lung cancers are diagnosed when someone would present with symptoms, so a cough that won't go away or shortness of breath or whatnot. But what we're trying to do is see whether we can diagnose lung cancers much earlier on, perhaps when there's just a small isolated nodule that's a lung cancer in the chest rather than something that spreads and causes symptoms. And so there was a large clinical trial that was published about six or seven years ago that showed that compared to getting chest x-rays, that doing a low-dose CT scan in patients who were at high risk for developing a lung cancer was associated with a 20% decrease in the chance of dying from a lung cancer. So we're still finding lung cancers, but we're diagnosing them earlier. And the high-risk population that we're trying to target is persons who either currently smoke or have quit smoking. And we try to target patients there's a, a couple of different guidelines, but generally patients between the age of 55 to 80, persons who don't have any symptoms, so someone who's just coming in for a, a screening test would be someone who wouldn't have any of the other symptoms that we talked about, someone who has an average of a 30-pack year of smoking history, so that is on average about one pack per day for 30 years or more cigarettes per day for a shorter period of time and then either someone who is still smoking or someone who quit smoking within the past 15 years. So we know with any screening program, we're really trying to target a high-risk population, so those people who are at the most risk stand to benefit the most from a screening tool. So we're trying to really find persons who don't have any symptoms, and of course we never want to find the lung cancer, but if we do, the chance of finding an early stage lung cancer that can be cured is much higher in the setting of screening. Let me ask you a follow-up question. Uh, and, and again, I attend the tenure lecture, and and I knew about some of the guys, but that just kind of reinforced that I need to do better. What are you kind of What are you guys kind of seeing as far as like as far as primary care physicians? You know, obviously the message is out to screen uh, those appropriate patients, but. Are we, I mean, do you see it from your perspective? Is it being utilized? Or certainly you can comment from like Loyola's standpoint. Um, has this really been a big push to, and you're seeing some numbers of at least tests being ordered? Yes, I think we've grown in our lung screening program every year. And we also have a screening program at the VA hospital, uh, Heinz VA hospital, and that has really grown quite a bit over the last few years. And primary care doctors are really the the bulk of physicians who are ordering these studies. Some of the pulmonologists or lung doctors are ordering studies and some oncologists and other doctors. But really, we're relying on the pulmonary, or the, excuse me, the primary care doctors to order most of these studies. I think it's, we're definitely seeing tests. We're seeing more tests over the years, but I think it's still a, a very much underutilized test. And the, the data supports that, that most patients who meet the criteria for screening are not getting screened. I know I've certainly have, uh, found that a little bit challenging because I look at the, you know, looking at the data, if I'm in, in, correct if I'm wrong, uh, but uh, 55 years old, uh, at 55 to I believe 77, and um, somewhere in that point, and then uh, at least a 30-pack year history of smoking, they automatically qualify, uh, but as long as they didn't quit, if they quit longer than 15 years prior, then they don't qualify. Is that is that is that about right? Yeah. Okay. Yes. So so then um, I know I know one of the challenges that I see is I'll order the test because I, I attended your lecture and I was like okay oh my gosh I got to do better ordering this test 
I still have a lot of smokers in my practice that we try to counsel over the years, and then um, months may go by. So your lecture was back in April, and here we are in August, and I've ordered up, uh, you know, probably a few dozen of those tests. But the actual numbers of seeing them across my desk and getting done is 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 really horrible. I mean, we're talking just a few patients. How do you kind of how do you kind of combat that, Dr. Boz? Like, you know, you may order a test, and then it never gets done, and then look, you know, God forbid you know, that is that person that comes back with a large mass when they finally get it done. Yeah, I mean, there's there's obviously some barriers to, to making sure the tests you order actually get completed. Uh, some of it, you know, whether patients are, sometimes people are afraid to know, to find out, and, and but uh, some of it too is just, you know, trying to, you know, using electronic medical records can be helpful to set up reminders and, and try to remind patients that, hey, you know, we think it'd be a good idea to get this test done. I think that has, has been helpful, too, to, you know, set up these electronic reminders that if there's some period of time the patient hasn't done the test, that then we can call them and try to encourage them to do it. But, uh, but yeah, it's, it's a challenge to, to try to screen everyone who, who should be screened. You know, we were talking a little bit earlier about how just the numbers don't lie. Lung cancer, you know, in 2013, at least that was a data that I saw. Maybe there's some newer data out there. But, uh, you know, 160,000 people dying from that condition, more than three times the amount of the second uh, cancer, uh, cancer killer, colorectal cancer. And, and, you know, by the time we know that, obviously, lung cancer is lethal. And actually, by a lot of time, by the time it's diagnosed, it's, as, as, as we're talking about, it's, it's a little too late. Um, and people have advanced disease. Again, again, we just want to just get the message out there how important it is. And so let me ask you this, I'll ask Dr. Zerlanis this one. How do you, how do you just kind of hit home the importance of, of just educating people about lung cancer? Uh, and it's not, and we're not putting blame in, we were talking a little bit off air about, uh, you were asked a question at a lecture one time and, and somebody said, well, I don't know if we should be doing certain things related to that for people that have smoked because they've kind of shot themselves in the foot on their own. And that's not the way to approach how we care for people. So how do we really kind of drive home the point of like lung cancer is lethal? How do we drive that home? I think most people have been touched by lung cancer in some way just because it's such a common cancer and... I think to some extent the, the message has always been lung cancer is a really bad disease and, and many people think that there's not much that can be done, but certainly with trying to decrease causing lung cancers in the first place, things like smoking, you know, preventing smoking and that sort of thing, but that's difficult. But we now have a, a method or a way by which we can find these lung cancers earlier and so I, need, I think we need to start infusing some hope into the picture. that. There are lung cancers that are curable. We're diagnosing more and more lung cancers at a stage where they're curable because of screening. And like, like I said earlier, of course we never want anyone to have a cancer, but how much better would it be if we can find the cancer at an early stage when it's potentially curable? And so I think we need to really share the message that just like we would think about screening for breast cancer or screening for colon cancer, both to physicians and to patients, just to say this is something that we really should think about doing, that perhaps doing this will help us to diagnose a cancer. And I think the other thing that we should tell patients is that most of the scans that we do looking for lung cancers do not show lung cancers. I mean, that that's the minority of patients who are actually diagnosed with lung cancers. So I think, like you said, there's a lot of fear. What will we find? What will we do about it? And we, we have to tell patients that oftentimes we do find nodules. You know, we might find an abnormality that even requires 
more frequent scanning or a procedure to try to figure out what's going on. But really, of the patients that we're, that we're screening, it's the, the small minority of patients who have a cancer. And so I think we need to try to help patients be more proactive with their health care in the same way that we would with other types of screening. And I think as time goes on and we start to, you know, we, we start and continue to show a shift in the cancers that are being diagnosed, I think over time we'll, we'll really start to bear the fruits of this labor. But for now, I would just try to tell patients that we certainly, if we're going to diagnose a lung cancer, are better off diagnosing it at an early stage. So definitely trying to empower patients to, to find out as much information as we as we can. Thank you very much. Uh, before we dive into some of the next kind of topics that we're going to do, I want to just take a quick acknowledgement to our sponsor again today. Uh, we're very grateful for them. MainStreetCandyandToys.com. Check them out. Uh, Main Street Candy and Toys, it's in Elmers, Illinois. It's 3,000 square foot feet of specialty tinkers and playthings. Showering our town with a thoughtful collection of the latest in crafts, robotics, magic, collector's items, trains, art, family games, outdoor play, and more. Doing things our way through the joy of play. Thank you again, Main Street Candy and Toys. So I want to talk a little bit about just the funding. Um, we know that there's a lot more uh, awareness, certainly, of breast cancer, for example, uh, or other kind of prostate cancer, you don't see a lot of, I mean, you see some stuff certainly come from organizations like the American, Heart, American Lung Association and, and other organizations, but, but Dr. Paul, let me ask you this, why is the funding for lung cancer just kind of at a fraction of what it is for some other cancers? And I'm just really comparing it to breast cancer, when we know that I mean, breast cancer is very, very serious. Um, now, we know that from the number of deaths per year from breast cancer compared to lung cancer, it, it doesn't compare but you see twice as much funding for breast cancer. Do you see any reason why some of the, we're not creating more funding for, out there for lung cancer or some of the barriers out there? Yeah, that's a great question. There's been a lot of debate about that. Uh, you know, some of it may have to do with the stigma of that, you know, a lot of lung cancer is, is related to smoking, that, that there are people who will say, well, you know, smoking, you, you cause this, and, and it's just horrible to look at it that way. But I think stigma has has a lot to to do with that, and something that we need to, you know, we need to, to reverse the, the stigma and understand that, you know, it's not not anyone's fault for something like that to happen, and and it, you know we need to, to work forward to, to get more funding, and I think also just because the you know lung cancer is over years felt like there wasn't a lot of good treatments for lung cancer. And I think things are, are getting better. We have a long way to go, but, you know, things have advanced. You know, there's new treatments coming out. It seems like every day that we're, we're seeing new therapies, and hopefully it continues to get better and that we can start to start to improve. Thanks. And, and thank, speaking of some of the therapies, Dr. Zerlanis, can you talk a little bit about some of the, the therapies that are out there? Uh, certainly we think of like chemotherapy or even there's times when people may have to have a surgical approach, but is there kind of a general approach to, to therapies out there? Or, and maybe you can maybe, a little, maybe start out by commenting on a little bit of like how's lung cancer staged? And certainly, of course, a therapeutic plan is developed based on the most accurate form of diagnosis. Yeah, so lung cancer is staged based on an assessment of the tumor itself, so the size, where it's located, whether it has spread to any lymph nodes in the chest or outside of the chest, and then whether the cancer has spread from the chest cavity to other parts of the body, some other organs in the body. And so it's staged from uh, stage one to stage four. 
stage one being an earlier stage of disease and then stage four where the cancer has spread from where it started to other organs in the body. And really the treatment is heavily tied into the, both the type of cancer as well as the stage of cancer. And so earlier stage cancer, so you know the types of cancers that we hopefully pick up on screening or cancers that we're able to find before they've spread to the lymph nodes or other parts of the body, we try to treat with a potentially curable surgery or with a special technique of radiation therapy, either for patients who can't have surgery or for other reasons don't have surgery. For more advanced disease, we often use a combination of chemotherapy and radiation to try to treat these cancers. And then for cancers that have spread or metastatic cancers that have spread from where they started, that's where our, our treatments really have grown over the past five to 10 years. Coming out of fellowship, there, there are treatments that I'm using on a near daily basis now that didn't even really exist or weren't even on the, the landscape 10 years ago when I was coming out of fellowship. So it's really an exciting time to be a, a physician treating lung cancer because we've made some really great strides. And I think that's an excellent point about trying to infuse both hope and, and money into, into funding to try and really try to find more cures and to help patients live longer and, and better lives. I think one of the, the great trends that I'm seeing, and, and as, as a primary care physician, certainly by the time we make these kind of diagnoses, certainly they're working with you guys as, as medical subspecialists, but I just really, uh, really am very hopeful about the technology as it's evolved. You know, going from very more of a kind of a one-size-fits-all approach to cancer treatment to very getting down to specific molecular, at the molecular level of targeting, specific targeting of therapies. And as you're saying, it's like some things that you were doing, you know, when you were in fellowship, or, uh, you know, it's completely different. And things that maybe used to be experimental back then are now more commonplace and, and much more attainable by people. Would you would you comment a little bit more about that? Sure. Um, one of the areas in which our treatments have really grown is for patients with metastatic disease or disease that has spread. And we we know that you know ten years ago or, or more we were doing traditional chemotherapy, which as we know can carry a lot of side effects, and unfortunately was not usually able to, to cure very many patients. And so we learned after that that certain types of lung cancer responded better to certain types of chemotherapy. And that was one of the first exciting things for us, that we could sort of use different types of chemotherapy to treat different types of lung cancer. And then after that, we learned that when we sort of took a deeper dive into the molecular aspects of tumors, and by that we mean looking in a more detailed way at tumors. So in the same way that the cells in our body contain DNA, so do the cancer cells or cancer tumors. And we can look for changes or mutations in the, the genes in the tumors. And these mutations we know can drive or in some part cause these cancers to both grow in the first place as well as to spread to other parts of the body. And we can actually harness these mutations. So we can use these particular mutations to target a particular change in the, the gene. And we know that in someone who has a particular mutation, one that we speak frequently of is the EGFR mutation or epidermal growth factor receptor. And we know in that particular mutation, using a drug that targets the change is more effective than using chemotherapy. And so now there are a number of mutations that we can target with drugs, and some of these drugs are even oral therapies or drugs that we take by mouth. 
and we know that these are more effective in, than chemotherapy in patients who have these particular mutations. So we look for these. When someone has a new diagnosis, we, we really do advanced testing on these tumors so that we can help target or cater treatment not just to the patient like we used to do, but to the patient's tumor, which is really very exciting. And another area that's grown over really the last few years is the area of immunotherapy. So rather than using chemotherapy to kill the cells that are growing quickly, we're using the patient's own immune system to fight you know, foreign cells or cancer cells. So we're, we're using these drugs in, in ways that years ago we never even knew were possible. And now the, the combination of still having options with chemotherapy as well as these targeted agents and immunotherapy drugs has really changed the way we look at lung cancer in trying to really help people try to live lives that are as long and full as possible. I really, I really love hearing that, that again, there's hope out there. You know, you have so many tools on your utility belt, and this is, uh, yes, as we deal with certainly the, the reality and the severity of cancer, on the flip side, we have so much hope that there are new technologies that are out there for people. You know, when you think about everybody's been touched by cancer, you know, parents or grandparents or some people that have passed before us, you know, they, they never had these kind of options. And, and, and now we're giving these options to people and, and things that we thought of that would never happen, now they're happening. And, and, and that is the human existence. That is something that we can be hopeful of and, remindful and, and mindful of that, hey, we can finally, hopefully, one day truly beat cancer. So I just get excited hearing these kind of stories because this gives people out there hope and their families hope as well. Let me answer the next question to Dr. Ball. Um, uh, as a lung doctor, of course, you're, you're seeing the devastation of smoking all the time. And, and certainly when people get diagnosed with lung cancer, one of the challenging things is getting them to stop smoking because some people might say, well, I got lung cancer, so um, and I know if my cigarette smoking did it, but so I might as well just keep smoking. So how do you kind of overcome that kind of barrier there? What do you, what do you advise people? How can we be successful in that? Because the reality, and you can probably explain on this, is that as they're still smoking, there's still there are complications that come with smoking. Absolutely. I mean, I see this a lot with either patients who've been diagnosed with lung cancer or either other lung diseases such as COPD or emphysema, which I see a lot of that patients say, well, I, I've smoked, uh, you know, I already have this. What's the point at, at this point? And, I try to encourage people that it is never too late to quit smoking. There's always benefits. We know from studies that even people who smoke who quit live longer than people who continue to smoke. Uh, and there's, there's other complications from smoking that people don't always think about that, you know, that smoking can increase your risk of infections. And if you're a patient who has cancer and you're going to be getting treatment for it, your immune system already might be compromised. and you want to do everything possible to, to optimize and, and make sure you have as good an outcome as possible. So no matter what, I, I always try to get people to quit smoking uh, a, as much as possible. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Zerland, I want to ask you this question, more of, kind of more of a again, big picture kind of question. As we're trying to move the needle, and you've commented very, very uh, well on the fact that we're able to now diagnose earlier and treat earlier and hopefully get move the needle saving lives earlier, but as you said, we still need to do more. You know, what, what's the role from your end, even as like a, as a physician, what can you do or what, or, or what else are you doing or what else can Dr. Ball do or what else can I do? How, what's our message to our fellow physicians out there when it comes to lung cancer? What can we do better at? 
I think the two things that I would think of that would be most important would be to talk about the role of screening and how important it is and try to make something that's underutilized be utilized as well as we can. And I think the second thing would be to try and really reverse some of the nihilism or, or some of the thinking that there's still not many treatments for lung cancer, which even some, some physicians still think. And so I think once we do those things, we can really move forward because oftentimes it's the primary care physician who might be either intentionally or through body language giving a message that, oh, this is a really bad thing or whatnot. And so I think really just trying to encourage physicians to you know, walk alongside with patients and carry hope that we'll, we'll do as well as we can to try to help patients live long and good lives. But I think really just trying to push forward screening and then push forward just that our, our field is moving quickly. We're, we're trying to do many more things for persons with cancer and just, I think, come along for the ride. I know one of the challenges that I certainly see is, is yes, and we, we, the reality is that disease burden in this country is certainly getting, getting worse. We look at cardiovascular disease, we look at diabetes burden, we look at other kind of conditions where we're still seeing some numbers grow. But on the same side, you know, a lot of times the techniques we're able to diagnose things earlier, so that well, that's why sometimes the numbers may seem a little more uh, inflated on disease burden. And it's like, okay, we got to continue to work better. And I personally try to strive each day to take as much time as I can to try to get the point home. And, and sometimes it is taking a little bit as physicians. we got to take a little bit more time to really drive home that point or have that person come back again, you know, instead of maybe seeing them in six months, knowing that they're still smoking, check on them again in a month, have them come back. What other kind of strategies are you doing with Dr. Ball to get people to come back in sooner? Or, or, what are, or as a clinician, what else are you advising other clinicians to do to help get the message home about screening for lung cancer? Yeah, I mean, just just trying to, to make it a point to, you know, I kind of put it on my, my checklist of things during a, a visit any patient who who has a history of smoking who meets the qualifications I try to put in a, a checklist I encourage primary doctors too I mean there's so many things as a primary care doctor that you have to try to cover in your in your visit but to try to encourage the screening for patients who uh, who need it and and then again just hammering home the smoking cessation and trying to not be somebody who's another person harassing them about their smoking they're probably so used to that but trying to be a resource for them to help them to quit and understand that I'm, I'm here to help and, and give you the tools to help you to, to quit smoking. That's so important. Excellent. Thank you very much. So what I want to do now, I want to uh, change gears a little bit because this is really good conversation as we're talking about, again, the education component. And that's been a theme, and that's, again, the theme of the show is, as we talked about at the beginning, again, again building, building that uh, building that trust and delivering the truth. And again, we're trying to break down some of these barriers. So speaking of breaking, breaking down barriers as it relates to lung cancer, uh, a number of weeks ago I introduced the concept of uh, a little segment on the show called Myths Versus Facts. And so what, what, and these, are, these are statements that have been mentioned to me over the years that I share with my expert panel, and we try to break it down as myth versus facts. So here we go. Myth versus facts, this is the lung cancer edition. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to read a statement, and my expert colleagues are going to say either myth or fact. And this is going back to my pimping days, because again, going back when they used to pimp us out kind of on uh, in, uh, in residency in Dutchess Orlando, and Dr. Ball would ask me questions and, and pick on you and everything, and just to get you knowledgeable on things. Now's my chance for what we call hashtag payback. So there we go. So anyways, myths versus facts, 
Uh, what I'd like you to do is just uh, say if it's a myth, the statement is a myth or a fact, and then maybe just give like a one or two sentences on why it's a myth or a fact. Here we go. Dr. Serlanis, here we go. Again, statement that's been made to me. Here we go. Number one. Here's a statement. It's too late if you've smoked for years. I don't know what I'm trying to say there. I wrote this down wrong. Let me give you a different one. I don't know what, I, what I'm trying to say with that one. It's never uh, too late. It's never too late <laughs> if you smoke for years. We'll, we'll, we'll exit that one. That's our first mishap on the myth versus fact session on uh, To Your Health with Dr. G. So we're going to give her a second follow-up question that I actually wrote down, and I actually think I made a complete sentence. So here we go. Um, myth versus fact. Low tar or light cigarettes are safer than regular cigarettes. Is that, you want to answer that? I'm going to say okay. myth. Okay. Well, you'll start <laughs> Good. There you go. Uh, <laughs> and please uh, explain a little bit more. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, the whole idea that there is somehow a safer cigarette, um, I, I don't think there there is such a thing. I think any amount of cigarette, any kind of cigarette is, is harmful. And we don't know actually even how much smoking it, it takes to, to cause various diseases. Is, is it one cigarette? Is it 20 cigarettes? It will, you know, I think the, the real answer is just zero, in whether it's tar or low tar. I think we've even seen over the years a, a change in the type of cancer, maybe because of the, the variations in the amount of tar, but in the end, it's still not safe. So. All right. Next statement for Dr. Zerlanis. I think I wrote again. I think I wrote a complete sense on this one, but here we go. Uh, if you have lung cancer, quitting smoking is pointless. I think we talked about this a little bit, but that's another myth. It's always good to quit smoking, both to help you with your tolerance to treatments and potentially with the effectiveness of treatments, as well as to prevent second lung cancers. We know that people who have had lung cancers are at risk for second lung cancers, and so we would hate to cure a first lung cancer only to have someone develop a lung cancer down the line, so myth. Okay. Next question, Dr. Ball. Uh, here we go. Uh, I use pipes or smoke cigars, and it's not a problem. I'm going to say myth on that one. Again, smoking, even uh, pipes or cigars, still still harmful. So thank you very much. And again, we can't get the message out there. Again, we're looking at, again, numbers, 80-90% of lung cancers uh, associated with cigarette smoke or exposure to secondhand smoke. All right, next question. Dr. Zerlanis, here we go. Um, uh, what am I trying to say with this one? <laughs> That's funny. I have like these incomplete sentences, but here we go. This is so we're starting fun today. All right. Um, talcum powder is a cause of lung cancer. So I think when we think of talcum powder, we typically think of talcum powder in cosmetic products, so baby powder and, and things of that nature. So in um, the early, probably in the 1970s, you know, there was a, a potential that there, the, these products may have had small amounts of asbestos in them, but really that hasn't been an issue for 40 to 50 years. And so perhaps if you're a talc miner, there would be some risks in inhaling talc, uh, risks to the lung itself, and potentially a higher risk of lung cancer, although that is still not totally clear. But I think in using current or, or recent cosmetic products, we really wouldn't consider that to be a risk. Okay. Here's a question for Dr. Ball. Ball and this is a little more, we can, we can associate this with lung cancer or just cancer in general, but here's the, here's the statement. Um, exercise doesn't affect my risk for cancer. That's a tough one. I, I, I think exercise in general is good for you, so I would definitely encourage 
patients to exercise. It's hard to make direct connections, but clearly exercise is good for you for so many reasons, and, and I gotta think that, that it is a benefit to re reducing your risk of a variety of cancers. I don't know if specifically lung cancer, but. I would, I would agree with you, I think, about uh, healthy living, exercise, you know, using um, things in moderation, except for, you know, zero smoking, of course, but other right. things in moderation, but, but yeah, healthy living, uh, hopefully does not, hopefully keeps your risk at a minimum. We know if you start adding risk on top of things or other kind of behaviors, lifestyle, that can certainly increase risk. And of course, today we're talking about some of the cigarette smoke uh, in relation to things. All right, uh, and then I want to ask this last question, Dr. Dr. Serlanis, um, and I'm trying to see what, again, I have to say. Here we go, here we go. Uh, air pollution isn't a cause of lung cancer. I think air pollution, of, of course, is potentially an issue for development of a, of a variety of diseases. So certainly the more air pollution, the higher the risk, and it really depends what the air is polluted with. But whether there's sort of a, a huge cause between air pollution and development of, of lung cancers, I think is not totally clear, but potentially a, a cause in development of other respiratory illnesses. Mm -hmm. Thank you. So we got about five minutes left, guys, and, and what I want to do is, is I want to kind of bring this home. You know, we've spent the last a little bit of time talking about um, lung cancer, and certainly we've talk, we covered topics from uh, how early do you educate people, and we certainly can all agree it's never too early to educate. Get the education in the school levels early. Get them in the family levels, your social circles, church. Just, just get the education, get the message out there. We've talked about vaping and some of the risks associated with that. We talked about lung cancer screening protocols uh, and, and trying to identify those people that are there, knowing that, again, the earlier we diagnose something uh, and, and potentially uh, confirm something, then we can start treating and people can start living longer and back to returning to healthier lifestyles. So what I want to do is I'm going to wrap this up. And what I'd like to do is, again, we talked a little bit about the beginning, how do we minimize the burden of lung cancer in this country as a kind of a question of the hour. But we're also talking about, we're going to wrap this up, so AKA called the assessment and plan. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask uh, each of my guests to just kind of give us a few take-home points uh, in relation to the theme today of lung cancer and kind of like what is important for people out there to know about this. We're talking about this. What can we take home and hopefully apply in our daily lives or helping somebody out that might have risk? So I'm going to ask Dr. Ball first, uh, what's kind of like your take-home points when it's related to lung cancer? What do we want people to know about it? Well, if you don't smoke, don't start. <laughs> if you do smoke... Quit. Uh, that's those are probably the the biggest things that you can do, and if you do have a history of smoking, you know maybe talk to your doctor about whether you would benefit from from doing lung cancer screening because again, as we've talked about here, uh, if we can find, hopefully we don't find the cancer, but if, if we can find cancers in an earlier stage, we have such a better opportunity to treat it and, and potentially cure patients. Excellent. And then, uh, Dr. Zerlanis, give us a couple take-home points in relation to uh, today's theme of lung cancer. So I think the first thing would be to try to cut down risk in whatever way that you can, whether it's through quitting smoking. If you are a person who is at higher risk for developing a lung cancer, talk to your doctor about lung cancer screening. Secondly, know that really the, the field of treating patients with lung cancer is growing. So being diagnosed with lung cancer is not necessarily something that can't be cured. And so know that we are working very hard to find cures and to find treatments to enhance the lives of people with lung cancer. 
And then third, having a diagnosis of lung cancer is of course scary and overwhelming, but always take the time and get as much information as you can, whether working with your primary care doctor, working with your oncologist, and always feel empowered to get a second opinion if you, um, if you are able, because there, there's almost always time. And the more empowered you can be, the more you can be in partnership with your care team, which is very important. Excellent. And my kind of final take-home points are this. You know, if you're concerned about lung cancer or you've had risk or exposure, I absolutely encourage people to talk to their doctor. Reach out to your primary care physician. I certainly, uh, that's your starting point. I've certainly said on this show many times that in order to start living, you must establish the fact that you're not dying. And it's super important to see your doctor on an annual basis. That's your baseline. Get a physical. Talk to somebody. So if you have concerns about your health in general, or lung cancer is what we're talking about today, get in and talk to your doctor. Leverage that relationship. Talk to a pulmonologist. Talk to experts uh, that are in medical oncology. Just talk to somebody to get the message out there. Again, we want people to be comfortable uh, talking about lung cancer and creating awareness on a daily basis. I want people to take charge of their health. Quit smoking if you're a smoker. And again, keep that ongoing communication with your doctor and diagnose lung cancer early because diagnosis at the early point, as we talked about this hour, saves lives. So what I want to do is I want to, I want to thank my guest, Dr. Cheryl Zerlanis, board certified hematologist and medical oncologist at Loyola University Medical Center, Dr. Matthew Ball, board certified pulmonologist and critical care medicine expert at DuPage Medical Group. I want to thank our platinum level sponsor, I'm mean, uh, sorry, our, our goal level sponsor today, Main Street Candy and Toys. Check them out, www.mainstreetcandyandtoys.com. Next week, we're going to talk about uh, prostate cancer, and that'll be the conclusion of my Cancer Sucks series. So stay tuned. You know me. Check me out on my website. It's Dr. G, www.drmarkgomez.com. Peace out.